stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, playwright, and multimedia documentarian Claudia Rankin. Rankin is a professor of English at Pomona College, who in 2013 was elected Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She has five collections of poetry, including The End of the Alphabet, Plot, and Nothing in Nature is Private. Her 2004 collection, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American Lyric, was a genre-bending and blending work of poetry, essay, and TV imagery, and earned her the Academy of American Poets Fellowship. Rankin is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her follow-up to Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an equally innovative hybrid work of essay, poetry, and visual art from Grey Wolf Press entitled Citizen, an American Lyric. Citizen is shortlisted for this year's National Book Award, and New Yorker critic Hilton Owls describes it as follows. Claudia Rankin's Citizen comes at you like doom. It is the best note in the wrong song that is America. Citizen is Rankin's Spoon River Anthology, an epic as large and frightening and beautiful as the country and various emotional states that produced it. Welcome to Between the Covers, Claudia Rankin. Good morning, David. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the origin story for Citizen. What was what was the original seed that uh, began this this project for you? It's hard, you know, after seven years to remember exactly the moment. But I think Serena Williams. I had been documenting and watching her for years, and I wanted to write a piece about the kinds of stresses that she um, negotiated as a tennis player. And, um, and once you begin to look at those sort of microaggressions that happened to her on the court, you begin to turn them back to yourselves. And, and so I began to document and to ask friends to give me their stories, and that began to accumulate, and eventually Citizen happened. And in the beginning of, of Citizen, we start with the, the personal microaggressions. But what was really interesting about that part was that a lot of those instances are happening in, in, in scenarios of established intimacy with colleagues or friends. Can you talk more about the importance of that choice? I think we all know the sort of supremacist aggressions. And so if, if I said... A skinhead came up to me and did X or Y thing. It would be like, of course. Um, <laughs> whereas the idea that there was a post-race moment in the United States, uh, you know, people kept saying that, and then you kept thinking, no, but I know that I'm feeling and experiencing and negotiating racism all the time. Uh, so I wanted to look at it on the level of personal, close encounters, encounters that you seek out, encounters that you treasure, um, beloveds in your life. And, and yet those ways in which skin color just kind of trips everybody up from moment to moment. S some of the more powerful sections of that part of Citizen were people who are interacting with you who... Uh, were interacting with you on the phone and didn't know you were black, and then the way that changed 
when they discovered you in person. Exactly. You you realize that it really has to do with your skin color, and that's it. The minute you show up as a black person, a previously harmless encounter turns into one that suddenly has this sort of current of aggression in it. And I don't know if it has to do with expectations around blackness and whiteness um, or if it has to do with what one would do for a white person versus what one would do for a black person, depending on who you are. Uh, but it's, it's, it's always disappointing, actually. Hmm. I think one of the crucial points or choices of this book that makes it so powerful is that you chose to tell it from the second person in a way that is, I, th- I think, very powerful and very unsettling both at the same time. And, and I imagine that because it's told in the second person that every person is reading it differently in terms of how much or how little they can en- identify with any given act that they're, act they're asked to be a participant in. Exactly. That was the intent. The, the question of how one positions oneself relative to the people in any vignette, I wanted the reader to have to push it away or own it. And it seemed like the second person was the perfect sort of tr- strategy for that. And also, I liked that we were talking about sort of the other people. And so the second person seemed to address otherness in a way. Mm. Um, it pushed away that cent- the centrality of the first person. Talk a little bit about uh, what the title means for you, citizen. It's, you know, it's one of the things about that word as the title is that it begins to suggest a kind of insistence. And I don't know if I, I went in thinking that that's what I was doing, but, but I, I sort of both like the insistence of, of Citizen up against um, David Hammond's hoodie, which he did in response to Rodney King's beating um, and not Trayvon Martin's murder because everybody thinks that it's a new image when in fact it's 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 decades old. You know, I I like that that way in which it it says this too is citizen in terms of that hoodie. But I also um wanted to have it as an open space, almost like a a field. And one enters into what what it means to be a citizen and what it looks like for some citizens. Mm. And in fact, what it looks like for all citizens if you're on one side or the other side of that you, you know? And so everybody's negotiating, and it becomes a very American word for me mm. in this context. Well, and you also, talking about post-racial, the supposed post-racial mm-hmm. America that we're in, and this, mm-hmm. this book feels of a time. And when you think about people obsessed with Obama's birth certificate, right. I, it feels like this idea of citizen, which um, on, a, on my first view, I think of it's about belonging. We're citizens, but it also is about us and them. Mm-hmm. And so who is the citizen right. that right. we're talking about? Exactly. The whole thing around the birth certificate was ridiculous. But that's exactly what it was asking. Is this man a legitimate citizen, mm-hmm. basically. And I think it, it sort of seeps out into all, into the bodies of all blacks. I, you know, I, I went back and forth about whether or not to include the long form birth certificate itself, and rather than just a reference to it. But in the end, I thought to include the actual birth certificate would be to be making an argument that doesn't need to be made, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally yeah. makes sense. You, you mentioned it seeps into the bodies of all blacks, and, and this idea of the bodily experience feels very present in Citizen. You have a, a line, resilience does not erase moments lived through, the body has a memory. Can you talk a little bit about the body in relationship to your poetry? You know, when I, 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 you asked me, the first question you asked me was about the origin of this book. 
And I said it was Serena Williams, and it was Serena Williams. But I was also very much interested in the health of people, um, especially black people, you know, the rates of um, high blood pressure, diabetes, all of those things within the black community. And so I started out doing a lot of research on um, why certain diseases, obesity, hit the black community so high. And because you, on a certain level, you feel like it has to be tied to trauma and has to be tied to, on some level to having to negotiate more than one should have to negotiate. Much of that material got stripped away, but it was also one of my concerns initially. Hmm. You, you mentioned the, uh, the cover by David Hammonds in The Hood, which was not about Trayvon Martin, but now I think is also about Tra- Trayvon mm-hmm. Martin. And it feels like the perfect cover for this book in the sense that a hoodie is a, it can be used as a, a way to conceal or to try to blend in even. And it also is a signifier in our culture for race, class, and gender potentially uh, that it deals with this seen-unseen uh, belonging, standing out. And when you're reading the the parts about Serena Williams and also Zinedine Zidane, the, the French-Algerian soccer player who headbutted the Italian player in the World Cup, you really get this sense that there's something treacherous ab- about trying to call out racist, someone as a racist, if you are a person of color. Can, can you talk about that conundrum a little bit? I Yeah, I think that this, uh, uh, what's the incoherency of these moments, especially when you're talking about sort of uh, microaggressions rather than, you know, the big overt lynchings, <laughs> but just, you know, moment to moment, that becomes the issue, the, the, the question of who's crazy. You know, are you crazy for having done this to another person? Or are you crazy for having called it out? And what is able to be read versus what is open to interpretation? That, in a way, becomes a subject of citizen rather than racism itself. It's really Mm. about can we at least begin to think about the things that we say and do as impacting another person, despite our intentions, in a way. Hmm. You know, there was a, um, a friend of mine was telling me that her her son they brought home a thing from school saying, if you have a costume for Halloween, we only ask that you consider how it will impact someone else if that someone else belongs to that costume in a certain way, Hmm. which I think is a fantastic thing for a school to have sent home. But it's that, it's that question of, can you, can you understand that despite your intention, that maybe you are in fact embodying or communicating aggression against someone else? This ties into the uh, moments of anger that happen for Serena Williams and Zinedine Zidane that make them labeled with uh, labels like they're in, they've mm-hmm. gone insane or mm-hmm. they've gone mad instead of looking at what they're ultimately calling out in this moment. Exactly. The, 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 our sense of decorum in the United States means that we forget everything up until the moment of the response. So that the response becomes its own thing and not reactive at all. Mm. There's no sense of a call and response. It's just response. And if you step back, you know, 10 minutes before, you would say, oh, of course, that is the appropriate response to that. But for some reason, we don't... Um, I, it's almost like we, we think it's bad manners to say that person did this thing and so therefore mm-hmm. therefore she responded in this way what also makes me think of of family narratives when one member of a family is calling out 
something messed up in a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Often they're being blamed by the other family members for saying it rather than what they're saying actually being looked at exactly. as if it's threatening the, the narrative. Exactly. That, that, and I think that is the problem, that one has a kind of idealist notion about what America is and what it should do and be. And if you call out the moments of breaks, the breaks in that, in those narratives, you're, you're causing people to have to do a kind of looking they don't want to have to look because then they are implicated in it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Claudia Rankin, the author of Citizen, an American Lyric. How much or how little did you have your hands in creating Citizen as, a, as an actual physical object. The choice of, of uh, the color or brightness of the paper or the, the type of print that was used in, in the book. I have to admit that I, I, I can't give it over to anyone else. <laughs> and the nice thing is my husband, um, he's the filmmaker, John Lucas, he is a visual arts person. So in Don't Let Me Be Lonely in Here, we, we, you know, are on the phone constantly with Grey Wolf. And that's what's lovely about Grey Wolf because they allow us to do it. You know, we're just like, this can't happen. This has to do this. This has to be that. And they're incredibly responsive and responsible to the idea that the book, the presentation of the book is part of the book. Mm-hmm. And so it can't, it cannot be handed over to someone else. And when you started Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen, uh, prior to that, your books were less multimedia oriented. And, and your press at the time I read didn't like the direction you were going and didn't want to give you the freedoms that Grey Wolf is ultimately giving you. Exactly. You know, it's funny because you have a press and they do a number of your books, so you expect that as you change and mature as a writer, that they will stay with you. But they said, no, this is not what we signed on for. Mm. And in a way, it was a great thing for me because after the the moment of sort of incredulous horror of feeling like, oh, I don't have a publisher for Lonely, and then Grey Wolf showed up, and they have been so fantastic to work with in that they, they trust you. They, you know, Jeff Schatz, even if he comes in with one idea and you say, you know, this is not going to work for me, it's gone. Mm. Um, You know, so it's been fantastic. I have to say it's been a really great marriage between Grey Wolf and me. One of the reasons I asked about the book as an object and, and how much it came to be that way because of choices you made is because I kept inferring things about the the book physicality, the body of the book. Um, and I wasn't sure whether it was my imagination going into them or, or not, but even the, the contrast of the bright white paper uh, and then the quote you have from Zora Neale Hurston, I, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. I'm, I'm connecting those two things. And, and, and I'm also fascinated by how reading all of these reviews of Citizen, how people are all coming away with different things from the format. Uh, I read, I think yesterday, it might have been in The New Yorker, that it reminded someone of a police log, the way the text was laid out on the page. And I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that either. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about the role that the visual art plays in Citizen. So we have three levels of text in terms of narrative, we have the everyday microaggressions of invisible racism, the, the celebrities that we follow that are judged in a certain way around their struggles around racism. And then we have more notorious acts of violence that we, we've uh, mostly against black men. But then this, this is punctuated by uh, different pieces of art. And I, I would love to hear some of the considerations you had around, around placing the images in the book. I, I, in a sense, I almost see the book as a collaboration with um, these amazing artists because they had to give permission for the use of the work. And, and then it became almost a curatorial moment where you, you 
I, I shouldn't be disassociating from my own action. <laughs> I um, went and found images that were in a kind of symbiotic conversation with the text. And, and often I was already thinking about, for instance, the Greg Lycon piece that takes the Zora Neale Hurston line when I was writing. And so then I, I, I don't usually like to have images that illustrate. I, I, I like when the images kind of create their own path. And, and don't lock on to the text as a moment that shuts it down as an illustrative moment. But in, in this book, I decided I would, would weave in references to some of the images as part of the fabric of thinking. Because for me, that's how these images in the world work. I, I see a, you know, a collages piece by by Wangeti Mutu, and, and it stays with me. And I think about the impact of it in terms of, of racism, anti-black racism, and, or whatever kind of racism. And then you, you begin to, it becomes a real object in your, in your thinking life as you move around it, and it seems to move into a space of answer. And so I put the, the images in the, in the book in places where I wanted quiet or I wanted a break from the text, but continued engagement with the subject, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You also include some transcripts and some video stills of the situation videos that you do with your husband, John mm -hmm. Lucas. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the videos. The videos... You know, John just finished a film called The Cooler Bandits in which he documents the life of four African-American men who committed a robbery when they eight, were 18 and then went to prison for 20 years. And um, so sometimes when he's talking about these things, I'll go and write something because I'm thinking about it. So, for instance, the piece on my brothers, dear brothers, was a piece that got written partly thinking about them, partly thinking about Trayvon Martin on the phone. And then he will have footage that he's had from his documentary, and somehow we, we just sort of take a break from our individual projects and work together for a moment. Mm. And then we go off again into our own stuff. So they, they're very organic to our sort of domestic life, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it sounds mutually like it's mutually s stimulating and beneficial for your genres. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and for a while, he was thinking of putting poems in his film, but it didn't work because hmm. it didn't work. But, but it's that same kind of thing where it's like, well, you have that material and I have this material and what can we do together? One of the, the areas of citizen that, that haunts me the most, and, and perhaps it does because I'm coming to it as a white reader, is when you go to England and you're hanging out with a, an English writer and there are riots going on in England similar to the Rodney King riots. And, and the writer says to you, are you going to write about this? Ne with the, the sense that he would never consider writing about it. And... Uh, um, I, I, I would love for you to unpack that moment for us a little bit and, and, and tell us what place that, that has in Citizen. Well, the question of whose problem is this? You know, is this an American problem? Is the problem as much whiteness as it is aggression against blackness? And, you know, should the right reader think, wait, I, I in fact, should be writing this book. I, 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 you know, I was thinking about um, policemen the other day, and so I had this one line, uh, because white men can't manage their imagination, black men are dying. But then I thought, no, I'm really talking about policemen, so I changed it to because white men can't police their imagination, black men are dying. But... I began to think those white 
policemen, I think, really believe that they're threatened. I don't think they're really just going out there shooting to shoot. I think that they're so jumpy inside their imagination that when they're presented with these unarmed black men, they, in their imagination, think that the next moment they're about to be attacked. Hmm. And so they kill them. So the question is, how can whiteness control its own imagination? So it is our problem, this, this white imagination. But if we, if we step back from the, the white policeman and we look at, say, the right, white rider in his ho- comfortable home in England talking to you about the riots, uh, I wonder if also part of it is that the white assumption that everything that they do is the norm, that they're not actually, they're not aware of the fact that they're making a choice not to engage. Exactly. Essentially. Right. Because the policeman is, in, is engaged mm-hmm. and is imagining the threat potentially and but but the white writer who's not writing about it waiting for you to write about it and engage it it seems to me they they don't realize that they're imagining something exactly and who they're imagining the fact that this is not connected to them right and they're imagining and enacting microaggressions all the time and not aware of it because they don't see whiteness as its own construction. And they don't understand that their own positioning is a position of privilege that they walked into, not that they are. This makes me think of the uh, ultimately productive exchange slash conflict you had with Tony Hoagland at the AWP around one of his poems. Uh, which interestingly had to do uh, about tennis also and involves some racist language in the poems. Can, can you talk about that, about this white poet writing what he wrote in relationship to what we've just discussed around engaging uh, these issues? Well, Tony, Tony um, is, was my colleague, and... Um... You know, I think much of his work is intentionally provocative um, in, around sexism, homophobia, racism. It's it's meant to to engage one in considering these things. Um, when we discussed it, what was unfortunate was the his I think unwillingness to engage. Because I I do believe that if he were willing to have a public discussion around my perception of his work, for example, it would be a useful dialogue. Um, Instead, it degenerated into something where people just felt like they had to take sides. Mm -hmm. You know, I support this poet or I support that poet. But I, I, you know, if not Tony, then someone, I, you know, I, I think it's important for us to begin to talk about these things because I think we get stuck because we are thinking and thinking and thinking within our own heads and coming up to our own impasse because we're not able to communicate. So in a way, um, I wonder if, say, the, this imaginary, I know he's not imaginary, but this imaginary white writer in England who's not going to write about uh, the riots there is fearful of that dialogue, uh, uh, fearful of the dialogue that Tony Hoagland invited by by engaging it in his art but not being willing to engage it once the art is out there and being well, responded to. A, I think something positive that came out of my interaction with Tony was I started this website where I invited people to write about the racial imaginary and and their own difficulties writing race. And we received some really interesting essays by uh, white writers who expressed their own frustrations, their own sense of fear, 
around addressing a hot topic, you know, like the fear of saying the wrong thing. We had um, essays that always went to Africa, always went to the South. You know, what was interesting was that sense that whiteness itself wasn't a subject, that the only way to talk about race was to talk about it relative to the black body and um, not in terms of what it means to inhabit whiteness and to move around the world as a white being. So that those essays are going to be published in January by Fence Books. Oh, fantastic. And so I'm hoping that that will be a moment when at least there will be explorations of the thinking around the fear around writing about race by white writers. Do any writers come to mind who do write about moving around in a white body and engaging uh, the issue of race from that whiteness? Uh, there's a, Martha Collins is a poet who does it. Rachel Zucker, whose work I love, she also, um, I, I like her work because she she's always calling up her own inadequacies and questioning them within the work itself. Mm. So I think... Um, she does it. Mark Nowak, Shut Up, Shut Down, I think is an excellent example of a white male writer investigating white masculinity, hmm. um, especially with the pressures of a capitalist society. So his book, Shut Up, Shut Down, is an excellent example of that. So I think, you know, I think people are beginning to, to move into this arena. Perhaps our listeners can hear a little bit of the, the language from Citizen, if you have something you could read for them. Sure. So here's one of the microaggressions. You're in the dark, in the car, watching the black tarred street being swallowed by speed. He tells you his dean is making him hire a person of color when there are so many great writers out there. You think maybe this is an experiment and you are being tested or retroactively insulted or you have done something that communicates this is an okay conversation to be having? Why do you feel comfortable saying this to me? You wish the light would turn red or a police siren would go off so you could slam on the brakes, slam into the car ahead of you, fly forward so quickly both your faces would suddenly be exposed to the wind. As usual, you drive straight through the moment with the expected backing off of what was previously said. It is not only that confrontation is headache-producing, it is also that you have a destination that doesn't include acting like this moment isn't inhabitable, hasn't happened before, and that the before isn't part of the now as the night darkens and the time shortens between where we are and where we are going been listening to Claudia Rankin read from Citizen, an American Lyric. You, you've said before in interviews that you, you write into moments that astonish you, and you can feel that in, in what you just read. Does, does the outcome need to be uncertain or in flux in, in what you're exploring when, when you begin to explore it? Mostly, because then I wouldn't think about it as much. I think um, Barbara Johnson says that a stereotype is a text that's already read. Mm. And so I think as a writer, the moments that engage you and dog you are ones that throw you into flux, that stay open because there's a moment of not just incredulousness, just wanting to understand, wanting to to understand how you even got there, in a sense. Well, I love that James Baldwin quote you have around that. The, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden by the answers. Exactly. That's great. You, you've also said that you reject the idea that there's a division between politics and poetry. Uh, you've cited Cornell West as an influence around how he evokes this sense of responsibility. And yet you've also said... I am not interested in narrative or truth or truth to power on a certain level. I'm fascinated by affect, by positioning, and by intimacy. Tell us about that juxtaposition of, of 
those two well, parts when, of you. You know, Lauren Ballant is a brilliant critic. She wrote um, Cruel Optimism, and she and I are friends. And um, is, she, is she the person you discussed Citizen with in Bomb Magazine? Yes, um, sh- we did the interview together in Bomb Magazine. And she, um, I think, is engaged as a critic also on a certain level as an activist. And, um, and I don't think I've ever seen myself that way. I, partly because I don't know where the text will lead me. So I don't, I don't necessarily think of the destination. So in that way, even though I feel fully engaged politically, and I feel that the material of politics is the material of poetry for me, I don't feel as if I'm writing towards an argument, if that makes sense. I, I feel like I'm writing inside encounter, inside exploration of the encounter within a very politicized field. Mm. And you can't strip away the, the components of our citizenship, our race, our, what capitalism does to us in terms of what we want um, and how we're structured in terms of desire. So those things um, are, are politics around gender, um, sexuality, all of those things are alive for me constantly and in play constantly. But I don't think that I'm writing towards the resolution of any problem. And so I guess the corollary might be that if you had strong feelings about something politically, but you knew how you felt um, and knew the outcome of whatever exploration might happen there, you might not I be might not compelled r- to write about it. Exactly. Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, for instance, I wouldn't write about Barack Obama becoming president. But I would write about the anxiety around Barack Obama's body during his run for the presidency. So, you know, I, I know I support his presidency. I know I will vote for him. So I'm not interested in writing about that. How I hold my own anxiety relative to his black body in a country that also holds supremacist bodies, that is interesting to me. Mm. That I would write about. I'm interested in hearing how you feel like Don't Let Me Be Lonely, the book before Citizen, and Citizen are um, a, a pairing and how they aren't. I, I feel like there's this great resonance between the two in the sense that I do think that Citizen is a record in a, in a way of the illusion of a post-racial America in the time of a black president, and that Don't Let Me Be Lonely is a post-9-11 George Bush era exploration of, of racism and loneliness is that how you see it as well? Do you do you see them as as uh, somehow resonant pair, or is there are there ways in which they're very distinctly not related? Well, I I, I think I agree with you completely that they they come out of a time, and um, and those times are headed up by certain presidents with certain policies and positionings which determine how we as citizens respond and what we think about and what we fear and what we are disgusted by. You know, all of those things, all the emotions are coming forward. So the, I think the tie and the, con- the continuity, the continuum is there. But um, the difference is uh, I, the ranginess of Don't Let Me Be Lonely I feel that citizen is much more focused. The, the camera suddenly is focused on this pendulum between the black and white bodies. 
whereas in Don't Let Me Be Lonely, it it was more of a pan across across the country in a way, in with all its concerns. I didn't, you know, for instance, I didn't in in Citizen take up issues with Arab Americans or immigration issues around border abuses. I thought about doing it, and I actually did a lot of research and thought, you know, considered the ways to open out. But it, it, it was almost as if the momentum of the microaggressions began to form its own place. And, and so the other things just um, are waiting, I guess. They're waiting. Well, it feels like some of the things you've explored in Don't Let Me Be, Be Lonely, for instance, the loss of complexity after 9-11 in, in terms of our response have come back to haunt us now. And some of what we're expo- you're exploring in Citizen, I think of, for instance, even though Ferguson is not in Citizen, I would imagine it probably would have been in Citizen if Citizen had come out later, um, the over-militarization of the police forces, which feels like that was born in mm-hmm. in the world of Don't Let Me Be Lonely and mm-hmm. is born rotten fruit in, in the world of citizen. The, it just it feels like the, that conversation between the two books is is still happening. Because it's the same country. It's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we are moving. We're moving yeah. in very logical and unfortunate ways, unfortunately. Yeah. I'd love to, to touch on the role of technology in your work, not... Uh, they're both both of these books are are multimedia essentially and and also you have this repeating image in, in don't let me be lonely of the uh, television and the the static on the television and when I think of technology much like I think of the word citizen I I have sort of a a doubling of my response one I f- think of the ways in which it estranges us the ways in which we don't look in the face of the person next to us mm-hmm. we don't go out in the world and and form community and then uh, other hand I I see all the ways in which technology connects mm-hmm. and might make visible things that we wouldn't have a chance to create empathy around or even allow us to create narrative before someone else creates narrative for us. Right. Which is very interesting. And I feel like you're playing with that in both books. Well, I'm really, I'm really interested in surveillance and the ways in which surveillance now is turning back. You know, if you talk about speak to power, turning back on the power that put it in place. And so, you know, the police cars with their cameras are documenting their aggressions. And the cell phones are allowing us to see things we would have to have taken um, in a kind of he said, she said moment. Um, Hearsay, I guess is the word I'm looking for, a hearsay moment. Um, So that to me is very exciting. You know, when... I'm places now and something looks funny. The first thing I think is take out your cell phone, mm. you know, get the video on. And and I think more and more people um, are in that mode. I, I you know, I, I spend a lot of times time in airports and getting from one place to another. And I, the other day I had this horrible thing where the flight was canceled and canceled. So I was in the airport for like five hours but I'm sitting in my seat watching people go back and forth, and I was thinking, it's really interesting to see how happy people are because they're talking to people on their phones all the time who they love out in public. And so they're laughing and walking, but it's all in this phantom way, which is so bizarre. Mm. But it's also endearing to see people in these private moments in these public places and i i I was i started actually photographing it because people were so you know they had that they would laugh in the way they would laugh with their beloved on their couch except they're walking (laughs) from gate 10 to gate 15 right it's really fascinating our our now um the ways in which our bodies are being opened up because technology is allowing us to connect phantomly, you know, with this invisible other. Hmm. 
That, that's really well put. I, I would love to hear about your experience going to Ferguson recently, because while that was uh, initially unfolding the protests after Michael Brown was killed, I noticed how much more I was engaged because of technology, because there were people on the streets who were f- filming in mm-hmm. real time, and that Twitter was creating a narrative before any of the news could deliver it to me uh, assimilated. Mm-hmm. And it created all sorts of fascinating discussions. Uh, the technology did. Exactly. A- and I would love to hear about your experiences of actually going there. Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown is is fascinating in many ways because the the way in which, for example, the police pulled out the video of him stealing the c- cigars and um, roughing up the shop owner, um, the the way they inserted that into the moment where they identified the police officer as if to say, we can reframe this. You, you have this other image of the unarmed man being shot, but we will give you a look at another way to look at this, which isn't the place or time of the shooting. But, and so I love the insertion of that video at that moment. And then we have these other videos, the phone videos of, of, of people with the body lying in the street and the police just standing there and the audio of people saying, but he just had his hands up. Why did they shoot him with his hands up? And so then we had that. And then now we have this information that in the police car there's blood so clearly there's a struggle. And I love that now this new information is not a documented visual information, that mm. you know all of the documented information clearly is not working in order for justice. So we have to have this new invisible information being put in place. And so it's, it's that, that question of what is seen and not seen. And it's, so this case is really interesting because if we go back to, you know, the L.A. riots and the trigger in that was injustice despite what was seen. The body was being kicked, it was, it was filmed, and, and yet it didn't matter. And so... Here, I think they're trying to get us away from the the visuals because the visuals don't work to support the narrative. So they're they're creating these other narratives. So it's, I mean, I, I this I'm I'm not being articulate in terms of, and therefore I think, but these are all of the things that I'm thinking about around Ferguson. Going there was interesting for me because I I felt. I felt as if the scene of Ferguson was taken over by people like me, people who were there to see. And and so it was an odd moment to be on that street with so many foreigners inside this public housing complex. There was the memorial to Michael Brown. I was standing there and two men came up to me. One of them um, said, he looks just like me. And I didn't say anything because I thought he was talking to himself, actually. And then he said it again. He said, he looks just like me. And so at that point, I turned to look at him. And he did look like him. He was a teenage boy. And and then I I was a little taken aback by the the identification with a dead body. So then I wanted to sort of, in an odd way, distract him from it. But he was right. I mean, he could be next. Hmm. Um, it's, it's that kind of atmosphere for the black male body in this country. And then the other odd thing that happened was after they left, I was snapping a picture of the memorial because I was going to write a piece on it and I wanted documentation. And a woman came up with her toddler 
and she pulled the toddler's hands up in the air in the surrender position and said, you can take his picture if you want. Hmm. And again, I felt like, no, I don't want to, and I don't want you to identify that child with, with Michael Brown. And so I didn't take his picture. But again, it was the same, you know, it was odd to me that in, in the space of like 10 minutes, I had these two versions of the black male body, one as a toddler, one as a teenage boy, being inserted inside the memorial, hmm. basically. Which l- loops back to the idea of the body storing memory as a, as a mm-hmm. place of, a, of memory and ima- imagination. I, I feel like Citizen does something remarkable in this regard, perhaps related to what happened with technology and Ferguson for non-blacks being able to see something maybe that they haven't seen before uh, around uh, things that happen often in in these communities, Mm -hmm. but also the militarization of the police force, this failing narrative uh, of trying to to give a false closure to Mm -hmm. the scenario. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like Citizen is is doing the same thing in the second person in, uh, in giving an access point to people who wouldn't automatically make that identification at the Michael Brown Memorial to be able to go in and, and know what it would feel like to make that identification. Right. That's a nice way to, to frame it because in other words, that is sort of what I was pushing towards and why I included the piece about the the, the British writer, mm. that sense that you know whose story is it, and can you can you find access? Can you can you get in here? Because un- unless we all sort of get in here, it'll just keep looping. Mm. I I found it heartening to read that the Langston Hughes poem "Let America Be America Again." caught on during the mm-hmm. Ferguson protests and I guess the Poetry Foundation website had some unprecedented number of downloads the, of this poem. I think it was the Academy of American Poetry okay. actually. Yeah. Yeah. And it made that poem makes me think of of the line that Hilton Owl said about Citizen, the the wrong note and the best song that is America. The this idea let America be America again, but yet it never was mm-hmm. that America for me. Mm-hmm and repeated in a in sort of a cumulatively powerful way. The Langston News is I love Langston News because he from the very beginning has been in his art writing towards the ordinary. You know, he has lines like Life ain't never been a crystal stair for me. And, you know, things like that where you're, you're inside the world of working class America. And in fact, he was writing when the whole business of the talented 10th was being inno- negotiated in the sense that blacks had to present their best selves during the Harlem Renaissance. And, and, Langston was like, no, you know, we present the life we live. And that's what I'm writing about, and that's who I am. And he and Zora Neale Hurston um, were two writers that documented lower class, working class folk hmm. and and wrote in there, wrote towards that. And I think that's... So in some ways, I think it, it makes sense that his his work is what and where people would go now. Can you talk also a little bit about the last painting, the the painting of the slave ship that you chose to end Citizen with, and then the magnification that happens? I, I, I thought that was, I keep going back to that, to that last image. In, well, in Turner, you know, Turner actually wrote a poem about that. Um, I should memorize it. He <laughs> wrote a little poem about the injustices of the slavery. Uh, I, I wanted to end on on that because it all starts there. It um, this notion that Africans, Black Americans, are property, are not human, is what has dogged us 
once that equation was put in place, it seems now it's impossible to get to to make it into a misequation, to make it um, void and null. And and I loved that Turner was painting about that particular incident. I think the um, the ship owners threw the bodies overboard to lighten the ship when the, um, there was a storm coming. And then when they got back, they said they lost the, the I guess it wasn't, it wasn't about killing people, it was about throwing away property. And there was a case that, he, that they hadn't actually lost it, they'd thrown it away. Hmm. Um, and then, so I wanted, I wanted the the big picture, which is sort of beautiful, uh, it, the colors and the, it seems either dusk or dawn. And then the final image is the detail where the fishes, the fish are, where the fish are surrounding the drowning body and, um, and eating away at it. And that to me became the kind of microaggressions of the earlier sections of the book that those you know this the fish are circling and which is perfect because when you look at the big picture you may not see that exactly part. exactly and that was the the that's also what's lovely because you when you look at the actual painting you could look at that painting and not know that that's what's what what's mm. happening right until the detail is pulled out of it mm. can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now I well I have two two projects. One is I don't know um if we'll get it done but I'm working with Casey Llewellyn on adapting Antigone to the Michael Brown death because as I was thinking about his body in the street I began to think, where have I seen a body in the street before? And, and Antigone. And that question of, do you get involved? Do you not get involved? Do you take your miles and go to Ferguson if the indictment doesn't happen? Do you put your body out there on the line for this? And so it seemed like it was a natural fit for an adaptation in which I could maybe think about injustice and involvement and activism, because I'm not a natural activist. I, you know, I, I like to be at home, and I don't really think about showing up in those ways. And I began to think maybe this would be a time when you would or should show up if, if that indictment doesn't come. I know that um, Cornell West was recently arrested so that's something I'm working on, and I have been rereading Antigone. The other project that I sort of is the next project is I'm working on a script on Baldwin. Um, Baldwin apparently in the early 1960s had a debate in Cambridge with William F. Buckley Jr., um, and <laughs> in which they debated the question, is the American dream at the cost of the American Negro? Wow. And you can actually see it online. If you go online, um, the debate is up. And he, much of his response became the fire next time. Hmm. Um, that text, it was right after he had finished Another Country. And so, so we're working on a script of that. And could you also share your website if people want to see the situation videos or, or want to see some of the Tony Hoagland responses? The um, well, they're not actually Tony Hoagland responses. They're responses to writing about race, and um, that the racial imaginary book will be out in January. If they, if if people want to see the videos, they can just go to ClaudiaRankin.com, and you'll be on my website, and then you have access to the essays and also to the videos. Okay, great. It was great having you on Between the Covers, Claudia. Thank you for having me. We're talking today to poet Claudia Rankin about her latest book, Citizen, an American Lyric. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>